With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Art Studio. I am your host, Dan Burke. I hope all of you are having a great day in your art studio, and I hope the art is coming out well. Well, I got the proof back from the book I've been working on. First panel, second balloon, <laughs> typo. <laughs> but first panel, first page, typo. Look at it that way. So, thank heavens I proofed these things. And I found, you know, a myriad of different mistakes. But I corrected them. And it's looking better. Every project has to go through corrections, has to go through proofing. I think that one of the reasons we so easily make mistakes is we're trying to juggle so many things at once when we're creating stuff. And uh, it's like focusing on the perfect photograph, you know, getting it all right, but missing something else because you're so focused on the photograph. It's very easy to become uh, tunnel vision on something. So when you're drawing, you might have your drawing hat on, you're writing, you have your writing hat on, and all these different jobs you have to do to create something. Uh, I think it's very natural that sometimes you forget how to spell, <laughs> put anatomy in crazy. One drawing I did, I remember years ago, I drew the wrong hand, so on the right hand, I had the left hand. <laughs> it, was, it, it looked right when I first <laughs> drew it, but now that I go back and look at it, it freaks me out. I know there's people who go back and redraw and correct their art years later. I don't do that. I won't go back and correct some obscene mistake <laughs> that I made years ago. I kind of like to have it out there actually for myself to learn and to understand what what mistakes are possible. It's kind of like driving. When you first drive, you have a set of ideas of how driving is going to be, and then you actually drive a car. <laughs> then you find out that people are running red lights, driving crazy, uh, people are jumping out in front of you, bicyclists, all kinds of crazy stuff on a daily basis will go on as you drive which was never in the book. <laughs> the first page of the driving manual should be everybody's crazy and might do anything at any time. You know, uh, running red lights and stop signs is just part of it. Uh, spontaneous U-turns, crossing over into your lane, uh, into you. I mean, rear-ending you. I've been rear-ended many times. Just guy just drives into the back of your car. <laughs> what can you do? You know, they're behind you. They've got you. So there's all kinds of uh, crazy stuff. Anyway, I'm diverging. Back to my book. Back to the proofing. So my daughter now, uh, my daughter and I, she, she and I got to grow up in a very, uh, or she got to grow up in a very probably different way than most kids grow up. I got to raise her from when she was a small child in the very beginning, changed all the diapers, 
And uh, I got to raise her all the way through childhood and be with her for a great deal of the time. Uh, this is an unusual circumstance, I think, for most people because they work out of the home and they're not home to be with their kids all the time. And I had the great gift of being home with my child while she grew up into an adult. And it was really a good thing, and it is a good thing. Anyway, one of the things that we did over the years as we sat together is we talked about comedy and the analysis of comedy. Now, I'm no genius on the analysis of comedy, but I have read books about, you know, w jokes, writing jokes, how to set up stuff. That didn't make me better at it, okay? <laughs> I'm not claiming I'm any kind of good joke writer. I'm just saying that I understand, you know, how to create points of tension, conflict. You know, why a show like Two and a Half Men is very much like, uh, you know, Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis, or other comedy teams, Abbott and Costello. What the point of tensions are between the two people as far back as Laurel and Hardy. Why is it funny? Why is it funny when you get caught lying and try to deny it, you know, and all kinds of things that characters do. So nowadays, of course, very, uh, you know, the big story arcs that we understand as people, you know, like the journey story or, you know, uh, Groundhog's Day, uh, any kind of story that you've seen before, you know, the hero learns a lesson and comes back and saves everybody, stuff like that. There's classic story arcs uh, through everything. Anyway. Uh, but she, she and I have been discussing that for years, and especially as it pertains to comedy, comics, reading, writing, drawing, and sequential comics especially. When I taught sequential comics uh, to little kids in school, she sat through many of those lessons because she came with me to work. 100% of the time I brought her to work with me. Imagine that as an indulgent demand, huh? Anyway, she would sit in the back of the class and chill out while I taught the kids, and this went on for years. So she really has a big indoctrination in how comics work, how they're supposed to work, the structure of them, and so on and so forth. And she has a good feeling about jokes and comedy. Now here's the thing. She read my new comic strip, Donut Holes, and did not laugh once. I don't even, I'm not even sure she smiled. <laughs> the comedy's really not her thing. It's like putting on, you know... Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, you know, for a small, for, you know, for someone and, and them going, what am I watching here? You know, not everything's for everybody. So I don't think the comedy was for her. And it's not supposed to be for her, if that makes sense. Uh, I think she likes something a little more overt and slapstick. However, she can still understand what it is I'm trying to do. The setup, the tension, why it's supposed to be funny. So she had some very good feedback for me about the comic strip. She said, you know, it was it made sense, you know, it, it, you could read it, understand it. <laughs> and I didn't, you know, say, well, what do you think about being funny? <laughs> she brought that up. You know, she had, you know, the jokes work uh, for what they are, she goes. But right here in the middle of the story, she goes, this joke doesn't work. And here's why. And also uh, some other feedback on this very particular cartoon uh, about the setup for the joke not really landing and what were they really talking about. So the whole thing ended up sort of being confusing. And I thought that just by mentioning it, people would get it and understand it. Uh, but that's not the case. <laughs> so when I, did, I went back 
and looked at that cartoon and I did not change it. What I did was is I drew another cartoon that follows it up that tries to more overtly explain what it is I'm trying to explain. Now, one of the reasons for this is Donut Holes is supposed to be like a soap opera. It's supposed to be like one of those Mary Worth type comic strips where we follow the heroine or the hero through a series of you know, sort of quote-unquote grounded adventures as opposed to explosions and car chases and things that might be going on, you know, like in Dick Tracy, uh, through a series of adventures in a very soap opera way. And there are comic strips that used to do this. I don't think there are any more. <laughs> I can't find them anyway. Uh, but so that's what this is supposed to be. And it's supposed to be like a weird take on what a soap opera would be if it was as deranged as I'm writing it. <laughs> so again, I'm not saying any of that's good or, or anything. What I'm saying is that's sort of what I'm going for here. Uh, that's what it's at. That's what I'm going after. And I'm doing all this, presenting it in four panels per episode, so to speak, or per thought, per idea, per joke. So doing a four-panel strip lends itself to a certain structure, especially if you're trying to be semi-funny, I guess we could call it. I'm trying to be funny, not semi-funny. And uh, <laughs> trying to land these, you know, this humor in this thing. Anyway, that's my explanation for why it's not funny, <laughs> because it's supposed to be a soap opera, and it's not supposed to be, you know, never mind. But you get the idea. I'm just trying to rationalize why uh, it's not all that great. Now, here's the good news. I myself like it. And since I've been talking that I myself am the ultimate audience, or perhaps the first, second, third, fifth, hundredth audience for my work, in other words, ultimately, I'm the one I have to please. I'm really drawing and writing things, writing these things for myself. So that's that's the point, is do I look at it and find it humorous? And yes, I do. And I have a, a weird twisted, bent sense of humor. And things that are not, just the, some, some small things, the way I use a sentence, the way something is structured makes me laugh. And, I, and it doesn't mean it's going to make other people laugh. <laughs> so I really had to accept that, wrap my head around it. Uh, I don't want to go out and be a live comedian and have my jokes bomb in front of people. I don't think I can handle that. But I can handle my comics not being all that funny because they are what they are. So I think that uh, I, I got a good lesson from uh, her about my cartoon. I helped improve it for sure and uh, tried to make it make more sense because I want it to make sense. Basically, the character says, hey, I'll meet you all in the flower room. That's the first panel. And then uh, the two guys go, what the heck's the flower room? I don't know what the flower room is. Let's get a drink. And uh, so they decide to drink heavily as opposed to rationalizing out what's going on. She's read that cartoon and was like, this doesn't make much sense. What is the flower room? What, what's that about? You know, I mean, like, so I thought that her telling them that would get the idea that she's working on some kind of flower slash feminine type project uh, and that they were put off by anything feminine slash creative and that they were going to drink heavily try to drown it out the two businessmen who work with her so I don't know I thought that was sort of self-evident but it's not so I made it an adjoining cartoon right between the next two cartoons now remember everything's supposed to be sort of sequential like a soap opera so 
inserting another cartoon between two sequential events can be tricky if you don't do it right. But I always try to uh, structure the thing so that it is a possible sometimes to interject another you know, idea, sequence, thought in between them. And that's done by keeping them complete. Each four panel, even though it might be continuing on, is its own thought and idea. Usually. <laughs> this is a two-parter. Anyway, I thought, I thought I'd bring that up, that I was surprised that it didn't make much sense to her. She had really ra- valid reasons why it didn't make sense, even though I just explained it to you in the terms I saw it as. Uh, she didn't see it that way. And so I went back and, you know, tried to make it more clear. I think it's important to have other people look over your work who you like and can trust. And I know lots of people talk about this. Uh, but the thing is, you don't want a yes man when you hand somebody your work. Because a yes man uh, will just sort of validate you and it won't work for you. They won't be able to give you criticism that will actually help the work make sense. Remember I wrote a piece when I was a little kid in the sixth grade. And the teacher said, this part here doesn't make sense. You know, how did they get into the, you know, the cave and they're trapped? And how did they get out again? Like, I didn't explain how they got out of the cave, I think. And I always remembered that, that I hadn't explained it correctly, and I needed to be more clear with my stories. I was like, wow, that wasn't very clear. (laughs) So anyway, lots of great feedback on this book, Donut Holes. Uh, I'm not sure what I want to do next with it. I've sort of like completed my thought on it in some ways, even though I have other ideas for, for adventures inside it. But what's my end game with it? That's something I have to think about. I'm working on my League of Annoying Heroes new comic strip. I really love the League of Annoying Heroes. They <laughs> they represent what I really like about cartoons, comics, thoughts, ideas, and satire. I'm in love with the first 23 issues of Mad Magazine where Harvey Kurtzman and Will Elder and Wally Wood were all at the top of their game drawing amazing zany cartoons. I can never hope to do that, and I do it sort of differently, my zany, funny cartoons, but I still do them, and I like doing them. So the League of Annoying Heroes has always been my sort of answer to that. But again, this is a dry sort of cartoon as opposed to uh, how much more, I guess I could push the farce of it, I suppose, even though the farce is pushed all the way to the max, I feel. But I try to present it in a day-to-day format because I think it's funnier. In other words, I think it's funnier rather than Superman fighting a a villain, you know, and the whole city uh, blowing up. I think it's funnier watching Superman, you know, look for his lost boot in his apartment. Like, where's my other shoe? You know, he takes an hour and a half looking for his shoe, or he has to go to the laundromat and do his laundry even though he's Superman. Stuff like that. I find those kind of things much funnier and engaging than the big epic story, you know, on top of it. I like the little minutia inside it, you know. Where does Superman go to get, you know, his supermarket supplies? You know, what does he eat, you know? <laughs> anyway, so now you see where I'm coming from with the League of Annoying Heroes. I'm caught up in the minutia and the day-to-day nonsense of it because I think that's funny. I think it would be funny to be a superhero and be caught up in day-to-day minutia and why that's funny. And I explained in my last show, you know, the theme of the... of League of Annoying Heroes, you can go back and listen to that. I won't repeat it. So, you know, I have a very solid structure to work with this, so I'm enjoying it. Uh, 
And this is a really simple story I'm drawing. It's basically about a press conference, the League of Annoying Heroes Huddle press conference, and what happens in that press conference. Seems like all all my League of Annoying Heroes stories comprise about 10 minutes in their life. It's like we beam into their life for about 10 minutes, and we get to watch that 10 minutes, and then we leave. That's sort of, I've come down to, in my thinking about it, how each episode actually plays. Because it's not about next day or weeks later or whatever, even though there can be those moments. It's about this moment, about this birthday party, about them getting on the elevator and going out to the parking lot. It's about small things, kind of like Seinfeld <laughs> used to be or other shows. It's not, you know, uh, Two and a Half Men, the original Charlie Sheen version, did it brilliantly. Those guys would fight about, you know, a, a bowl on the table, and that would be the, the fight for the episode, uh, and it would be hilarious. So things like that uh, is what that I'm trying to achieve with that, and that's what this uh, cartoon is about. It's about them holding a press conference, It's and uh, what happens at that press conference. So it's a very simple story, but uh, fun to draw. I'm trying to make it engaging. It's fun to draw these characters again. I forgot how much of a pain in the butt it was to draw eight characters all the time. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one thing to draw one character sort of floating around and everything. Then you've got to go back and draw eight characters. <laughs> it's completely crazy. While I've been talking today, I've been drawing uh, on the League of Annoying Heroes. And this one is a complete Kirby swipe. From issue 86, the splash page of Fantastic Four 86, I'm doing sort of my version of that. It doesn't look, you know, the same at all because I don't draw like Kirby. Uh, and I'm also not in this same aspect ratio he's in. But I'm lifting that same idea. It's a picture of the Fantastic Four and Reed is very close to you. And then behind him, smaller and smaller are the other members of the team. And I really like the way that looks, the cascading feel of that. Anyway, so that's what I've... Uh, doing here with this drawing today is I'm doing a sort of a swipe off that Fantastic Four splash page. And this is just for one of the panels in the book, but I love the way Kirby designed this panel. Kirby was an absolute friggin' genius at designing panels and layout and design and nothing that guy couldn't draw. Nothing. No, nothing beyond him. Uh, just, Just brilliant. Just brilliant. And he was that way all the way up. You know, if he wanted to, he could have pushed his art into a technical, realistic place like Hal Foster. And that's where he sort of came from very easily. No, he kept it dynamic, though. I have to say, all his work, he always tried to push it, you know. He was the the hyper-violence adventure guy, and and he always made it that way. I got to give him credit for really, you you can see it in all his work. You know, he was pushing for that all the time. And it's funny in Jack Kirby's work, at different points in you know time, because I have his work over 45 years, you can see the glimmer of what would happen in the future. Like in a work, you know, in 1962, you could see just a glimmer, like a panel or two, of how his work was going to look in 1972. You know, you could see his style slowly evolving, losing more of the old style and more of the new style coming on. You can actually sort of see the metamorphosis. My style has really changed now. Uh, Not, you know, megalithically. It's just that I draw a little better and tighter than I used to uh, just, just five years ago. And 
One of those reasons is because my eyesight has improved. I was able to finally afford glasses, which I couldn't afford for a while. I think having glasses has really helped uh, being able to see better and draw better. Now, flash forward five years with glasses, which is where we are now, and my style has really picked up more detail. And as I'm drawing the new League of Heroes story, I'm looking back at the old work, and I see a difference. I'm like, whoa, okay. You know, there's a lot of similarity to it. Still the same guy drawing. But there is a difference in the art. And you can really see it in the faces. Uh, I used to draw like very simple two or three lines for an eyeball. Now I might draw, you know, 16 lines for the eyebrow and the eyeball or more. Uh, And even though I'm trying to simplify it and keep it cartoon-like, I still draw just a little bit more intricately. And I think that, again, is because my eyesight has improved uh, to drawing. And, uh, you know, it's all relative, my eyesight improving, because uh, my eyesight is absolutely the worst. But uh, I think it's helped. Plus, the digital inking. That's, I guess, that's, that's probably the biggest effect, is when, you, when I'm inking on paper, you know, I can only ink so small, so to speak. You know, I don't use a zero one or something, you know. So that detail is not necessary or not really able to be created by me in in drawings that are only, you know, 12 inches across. But inside the computer, I can draw something, you know, of course, obviously zoom in and work a little more intricately on that face, that detail, that hand, things like that, uh, rather than being so zoomed back out in the real world when I'm inking on paper. So I hope that makes sense. So I, you know, and again, I don't want to over-detail it so it doesn't look correct. There's something really fun about looking at something that's drawn at the correct size, like drawing a big crowd scene you know, in a three-inch panel. You have to just draw like the suggestion of people in a crowd scene. You can't draw the little faces and noses. You can't see it. Basically, you see heads and shoulders and legs and heads and shoulders and legs, and that's mostly a shading job when you draw a big crowd like that. It's a suggestion cartoon. And drawing in that kind of cartoon way is very fun, And you don't want to kill that by going in and drawing some intricate crowd scene and then reducing that down to, you know, three inches across. It doesn't look right. It's all about shadows and light with something like that to make objects look like they have, you know, weight. So, you know, you don't want to uh, use the computer as a thing to zoom in too much into your work, create too much detail that's not necessary, and then, you know, print it as a three-inch panel. What am I looking at? So I try to keep... I try to be very cognizant of that and not to have too much detail in things that are supposed to be small. I'll draw a heavier line around it, make it more of a, a, a shape with heavy shadows or just, you know, just so it appears as the object it's supposed to be and not put in a lot of detail because I know it's supposed to be far away. And this comic strip has, <laughs> has a lot of that. I have a lot of crowd scenes and automobiles and people crowding around outsides of buildings and stuff, and they're really small, I mean like tiny. So it's just really drawing little slashes little dots and little shadings that suggest the people and zooming in on something like that would be a mistake uh, even though I still do you know correct little things uh, but but the whole idea of getting that look so it prints correctly maybe that's what I'm really talking about is you have to understand at what size the art is going to be printed and then draw for that size so it looks correct and again putting in a bunch of hyper detail in something that's meant to be small is counterproductive and does not produce a good piece of work. In fact, as it gets smaller, you may want to simplify it to get the, you know, the outline, the shapes, and so on. 
It doesn't mean it's not still a good drawing and you can't zoom in the computer to do it, but you want to be cognitive of what it's supposed to look like printed. I have been guilty of that many times of drawing things too small, too intricately, reducing them, and then it's just a big mess. And I've done that way too many times, including reducing type and balloons down to the point you can't even read them. And I've made that mistake many, many times, trying to cram in too much stuff into something and being too hyper-detailed. Big criticism I have with my work and something I've been cognitive of and worked on to get to get rid of it and to make it go the other way. So anyway, the, we've uh, gone down a rat hole here, but something I've really thought a lot about is uh, drawing things that are small, you know, in a, that are mega populated like a crowd scene or, you know, something like that in the small panel and how that's actually supposed to look, what it's supposed to be. For example, let's say you want to draw, you know, 10 guys riding 10 horses and they're in a panel and it's only two inches, the panel, two by two inches. What kind of detail could you put in with the horses and the 10 guys? Now, let's say the guys were not cowboys, but they were like Genghis Khan-type soldiers. How do you represent that? Are they carrying pikes? You know, do the horses look differently? You know, maybe there's armor on the horses. Things like that. How do you represent things very simply in a small, small panel? And I can't say I've been entirely successful with that my whole life, but it's something I've definitely battled with and thought about and wanted to have happen. Wow, a lot of talk about art today, huh? Got my art hat on today, yeah. <laughs> well, I've been drawing a lot. I've been doing a lot of drawing. I have this really cool easel that sets up anywhere. You put it down on the table, you carry it like a suitcase, it flips up, you put the paper or you know the board that you're painting on, whatever you want, want to in this easel, and you can go to work and it keeps everything at the right level, you know, level in front of your eye. So it's very important to draw that way and it really works out better for me because I have a huge distortion when I draw flat. If I draw flat, just that 10 inches as it gets farther and farther away from me, I distort the drawing. And you can really see it, really see it. Anyway, drawing flat on my portable easel is really helpful for me, and I really love this thing. I bought it at a garage sale for $25, and uh, what a great thing has this has been. I've had it for years now, but uh, terrific. I don't know if you guys have ever seen anything like this, but uh, it's very handy. And I also feel very James Bond with it. You know, I come in with my little suitcase, I snap it open, and my easel pops up. <laughs> it's like, ooh, you know, how cool. Even, you know, it even has a place and to hold all your paints and everything. It's it's really a nice easel. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm really enthusiastic about easels, as you can tell. <laughs> things have been going good here. I've been having a good summer. We've been wandering around, going places, doing things, doing a little shopping. Uh, my daughter is working as a lifeguard at the local YMCA, and that's going very well. Just a temporary thing for the summer, and then back to school. So, uh, But it's good to get out there and meet people and have fun, and it really is just the most temporary part-time job, but it allows her to get out in the world and meet people. And I think that's good and have fun, and all the lifeguards are kids her own age and stuff, so that's actually a great scene to be in the summer get paid to go to the pool. Not a bad gig. I did the same thing when I was a young man. I lifeguarded in the summers and it was it was a lot of fun. I have to say I really really enjoyed it. All right, I guess I'm going to wrap up now in a few minutes, but I wanted to talk about 
the strange case of President Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a special <laughs> sort of person, and I, I'm I watch with absolute sort of slack jawed. Uh, like oh my god type feeling most of the time when I see him in action and how he acts and uh, his first trip to Europe where he shoved the guy out of the way I don't know if any of you guys have seen that video he's coming through a crowd of diplomats and he grabs the one guy and shoves him out of the way and steps forward it's it's incomprehensible to me that you could act like that that you could be that way and he's so utterly self-centered and so lost himself that he can't see past things and now I have a similar affliction I'm not saying I'm as bad as Donald Trump but Donald Trump is like an amazing example of human traits quite magnified to an extreme level and you know he's petty he's small he's mean and everybody has parts of them that are like that now we don't want to be that way. We do our best to get rid of them and try to be fair and honest and trustworthy, you know, and fair-minded and stuff. But sometimes we get pissed off and we get like, hey, why are you guys treating me like that? What about me? You know, me. Well, you know, why aren't people recognizing me? You know, so a lot of our thoughts as people are about me, you know, <laughs> about yourself. And Donald Trump really exemplifies this fixation we can have with ourselves like a drug and only care about the world as it pertains to us as we see it as we feel about it and when you look at Donald Trump you can see how damaging that is how how narrow a vision he has of the world and how that impedes him from seeing the bigger picture and it's often hard to see the bigger picture and it's interesting because I think I've been you know, sort of trapped in that at sometimes to various degrees where people would come to me and say, hey, this is the big picture. You're missing it. And I'd be like, yeah, but I'm still utterly pissed off at the way I was treated by this person, individual, whatever, you know, company experience. And I'm still pissed off. So Donald Trump is spending most of his presidency pissed off and complaining bitterly about how he's mistreated and how the fake news and the news media are beating the hell out of him. And basically, he identifies anything as fake news that reports what you and I would call negatively or critically on him. But that's not really the case. Let's say you report, you know, Trump University was a scam and he had to give back $24 million just before he became president. That is a fact. Those are facts. It wasn't a real school. People got taken advantage of. He cheated them and had to pay them back. That is all fact. He would see that as a negative report. Now, it's just reporting the truth. It's just reporting exactly what happened, what he said, what, what, you know, what the company did, and so on, and the end result. But he sees that as fake news. So anything that does not stroke his ego or, you know, somehow, you know, pet him like a cat or be nice to him, he identifies as fake news. So we don't even have to use the word criticism. Just reporting the truth about Donald Trump, what he says, what he does. You know, Donald Trump, you know, said this today, some crazy accusation. He says, you know, Donald Trump is wiring his, you know, wiring him, uh, wiretapping him and so on. Just reporting that, just saying that identifies you as fake news. 
And that has put the news media, the country, and you and I in jeopardy in, in a very real way. I'm not saying the news media is accurate. In fact, I think many times they're way disaccurate. But I think not actually talking about the truth of that is a mistake. But then identifying everything that they report as fake is, is extremely damaging because then nothing has any credibility. And that's sort of the weird catch-22 of this is if you look at the news and you look at how they're always, you know, right now they're, Russia is the big enemy. Two years ago, no mention of Russia. Now suddenly Russia, which is as if it was, the, you know, the state of Kentucky, you know, attacking us. That's how much resources and stuff they have. You know, we'd be worried about Kentucky's attack for sure, but we wouldn't be that upset. I guess because they have nuclear weapons, are they going to set them off? I don't think we have that much to worry about really with Russia. I think it's been a created media thing uh, that, oh my gosh, Russia is altering our elections, so much trouble. You know, I think they need an enemy. They want an enemy. They want endless war. The corporations want the wars to keep going. And they're going to keep going. So the news beats that drum for war. And I think that's fake news. I really do. I think there's a certain bent to the news that is pushing things that way. It's like the news doesn't really report on the real facts of why we don't have proper health care in this country. They make it about something else. They never actually say the truth of it, that the corporations have hijacked the system, including the politicians, and they are charging way, way too much for medical care and pharmaceutical, and they're ripping off the American country and, you know, and the people. That, you know, we've been hijacked. Other countries have universal health care. We don't have it. How can that possibly be? It's because of what I just said. So things like that, the news media seems to me very disingenuous and not reporting. That's just how I see it. You don't have to agree with me. Uh, so the news media, in some respects, is fake news. But what Donald Trump is labeling fake news, in my opinion, is not fake news. <laughs> When they report on his shenanigans, one thing or another, what's happening, his, his daughter, you know, loses the, the contract at Nordstrom's, whatever, he attacks the news just for reporting those very facts. And that's, that's really crazy. He can't see past himself. He can't see past the me. Uh, he's like a 10-year-old kid in Arrested Development. It's crazy. It is really, really crazy. And uh, I, I worry about <laughs> the country because man he is one miserable pissed off 10 year old and I don't know it, it just seems like he can't get out of his own way it's pretty incredible anyway I didn't want to make the show all about that and Donald Trump because he, he is an idiot and I think that the more time we spend talking about him the more we actually lose in the end but I addressed it today because it's on my mind and that's what the show's about what's on my mind and I look at him and I shake my head and think, geez, this, this guy is an absolute idiot. <laughs> but again, that's just my own opinion. And, you know, there's 35% of the country, you know, 3.5 people out of 10 who love this guy, who think he's fine, doing a great job. So, you know, I could be entirely wrong. I have to also offer that up. I'm not some Svengali who has the future all mapped out. You know, I could be wrong. He could be an absolute wizard at running the country, and I just can't see it. 
You know, it's possible. That's possible. I've been ignorant about other things in my life that I've come to discover later are true or factual and been like, huh, I was completely ignorant about the truth about that. Donald Trump might be one of those things. I don't think so. (laughs) But, you know, it's possible that he could have some kind of, you know, fantastic administration uh, running and uh, I just can't see it. I'm going to leave you with a small snippet from the news today as uh, we head out. So you listen to that uh, after I sign off. And it's interesting. It's about uh, them talking about Donald Trump. And I thought this guy really hit the nail on the head in his analysis of Donald Trump. He was talking about Donald Trump's speech in Poland uh, on July 6th, I think it was, maybe the 5th. Uh, where he he lands in Poland and gives a speech to the Polish people and basically complains about the news media, fake news, and, (laughs) you know, they're investigating him and, you know, Russia, all this stuff. I mean, he brings it with him wherever he goes because it's always about him. And it's absolutely, I think, spot on and really talks about what's going on with the president and more eloquently than I can talk about it. I don't know this guy's name either. I wish I did. But anyway... Here's a clip of this guy talking. I think he nails it. I hope all of you have a great day in your art studios. Carry on. Keep doing your thing. Keep creating. And I'll be back here before you know it. Have a great day. Well, I mean, in addition to what you're saying, it is it just underlines the, the incredible narcissism of the president. I mean, everything that he says is about what how the press has treated me, how NBC has treated me, what I did for them, and they didn't repay me. It is never about even even the, the investigation, the Russia investigation. It's never about the health of the country. It's never about protecting the institutions that make the country great. It's never about like something that is bigger than me. It is always about everything that is as small as me with this man. And and when you view it through that lens, then it be, it starts to make a little bit more sense. It's not that it makes it right. It just makes it make sense that he cannot see anything greater than himself and that 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 kind of drags the presidency down that drags the country down that that makes us all sit around and talk about these talk about his feelings and whether or not his fragility is in play and whether or not he is personally hurt and injured by something that someone said that he didn't agree with and that he now tosses around the idea of of fake news as if it is interchangeable with whether or not it is laudatory for me or not. And that and that's crazy. Wasn't this an opportunity, Mike Shields, for the president to defend? With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.